Hey, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here. Hey, let me tell you a story. Good friend of mine tells the story of something that happened to him in his childhood, and it has scarred him. We've made fun of him for this many, many times. But here's the deal. He was at an Easter egg hunt. You remember those if you have kids? Do you, you know what those are like? And there was a large, like 10,000 Easter eggs on the field. And they were all given the instruction to wait until the go mark, the whistle blew, the gun went off, whatever, to go get the eggs, right? Can you, can you see this in your head? Hundreds of kids, small kids, medium-sized kids, big kids, ready to get some eggs, because in the eggs there are some candy, some prizes, that sort of thing, right? He, he's excited. He's thrilled to death. And all of a sudden, out of his corner eye, he sees some kids who are going out onto the field getting eggs before they blew the whistle, so he's not a dummy. He goes out onto the field, begins to pick up some eggs, and then somebody gets on a microphone and says, hey, wait, 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 we haven't started yet. We haven't started yet. So he's a rule keeper. He, he's trying to be a good kid. He takes the eggs out of his little basket, begins to put them back on the field, and walks back to his parents. By the time he gets back to his parents, he hears another thing come over the loudspeaker, and it's this. Well, it seems like we've created some confusion, so go ahead now and just get your eggs. And then the field is completely crowded. Well, he begins to make his way back the few yards out back to the field where the eggs are. But this time he wasn't able to find any because by the time he got there the second time, there were none left. Oh, he was devastated. To this day, it's why he's a rebel. It's why he won't follow authority. No kidding. He, like, he's a total rule breaker. I, I love this guy. He's like a man after my own heart. He doesn't like rules. But now, now, the reason I'm telling that story is I want you to emotionally get behind something for just a second or two, Okay. Once you get behind this idea of entitlement, here was this kid, young kid, expecting to go to an Easter egg hunt and at least get a few Easter eggs. He felt entitled to that. Nothing wrong with a sense of entitlement. All of you walked into this room today with certain senses of entitlement that are exactly the right emotion to have about various avenues of your life. When you work, you expect, if it's your job, to get paid. If you are pleasant, you expect in some level to have that reciprocated. Entitlement's a perfectly fine emotion to have. And it's per, per, purpose, uh, the purpose of this idea of entitlement is simply to create a sense of equitability in our world. It makes perfect sense. We all understand, no matter how old we are, like even my little John Ryan, who's eight years old, one of his favorite phrases when he feels his sense of entitlement infringed upon is the phrase, that's not fair. That's not fair. Now, his sense of justice and fairness might need a little tweaking, but he has the basic rudimentary ingredients for what fair is and how the world works and how it's supposed to go. And you know what this is like. I'm sure that you've had a friend that you invested more into the relationship than they do. You kind of carry the emotional weight of the relationship. And so you're the one that invites them out to dinner you're the one that invites them over for the barbecue. You're the one that shares the tickets. And at some point, five or six years into the relationship, you might have had the thought that many people in this room have had, hey, wait a minute. I'm the one always doing the stuff. It would be nice if it was reciprocated on some level. We're doing this series called Crazy Love. And whenever normal life kind of intersects biblical truth, I think it's important for us to talk about. And it's unlike maybe what could happen in some churches where we just want to tear down a few things. I want to show you not only the power of the sense of entitlement, but what Jesus had to say about it. 
Jesus was on the earth a couple thousand years ago. He had some funny ideas that ran against the normal way of thinking and doing. He was countercultural. He was the ultimate rebel in some sense. And yet when people heard him, their first thought wasn't, man, he's a rebel. Their first thought was, wow, there's something powerful about what he's talking about. Their thought was this, I would like to be treated the way he's talking about. And then their second thought very often was this, because you can read a lot of what they thought about what he said. It's contained in your Bible. Their second thought was, it would be great if everybody treated everybody else this way. I mean, you can almost imagine the wheels turning in their individual brains as they heard him talk, felt it resonate in their lives, but then go beyond just them to a global you know, community and then city and then nation and then worldwide understanding that if everybody operated the way Jesus is encouraging us to operate, it could make a radical change in this world. Jesus was a genius, by the way, because he would typically begin by appealing to what people wanted for themselves. And then he would say, he would always do this, turn it on its head and say, now listen, it's not just for you. I mean, if you're the only one benefited, good for you. But remember, it's not just for you. This is the kind of world we want to create for everyone. So, he would say things like, even if you haven't been around church, you may have heard that Jesus said these kinds of ideas. He'd say, for instance, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, that went against the grain because in that day, the enemies weren't some obscure force on the other side of the globe. They often lived right next door to you. If you were a Jewish person growing up in the time of Jesus, the enemy had a name. It was the Roman Empire. And they had stripped you of all the glory and national identity that you had. And they had made life tough. And Jesus used personal examples and said, now love your enemies. And then he said something that's tough for everybody. He said, he said that this is an example of kind of living this thing out. You might want to, on occasion, take your money and loan it to people who can never pay you back. Loan it to people who you don't believe can ever pay it back. And people went, oh, wow, that would be tough to do, but it'd be nice if somebody gave me a handout, a hand up, a little bit of assistance like that on occasion. And Jesus also said, just kind of unpacking this idea of that it would be nice if the world operated not simply by the rules of fairness, but by a greater rule, a higher rule, a rule of generosity. He said, and you probably want to get to a point where you're inviting people over to your house who might not ever invite you back to theirs. Now, just three quick examples I pulled from the teachings of Jesus. But the entirety of your New Testament, the Gospels, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus, they are full of Jesus giving these kinds of teachings. When somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. Because if you don't, you're just going to be adding to conflict and drama and it can escalate quickly. But if somebody in the dialogue, if somebody in the dynamic will turn and stop the thing, we can keep this thing from going in places that would be unhealthy for everybody involved, including the person who was slapped in the face. We hear these things and I think that if we're not careful, we take them out of the realm of doable 
and out of the realm of real life, and we put them on a different plane like, oh, that's just spiritual talk. Or that's just like, you know, people who really get it. That's stuff for like Mother Teresa and, and Billy Graham, but it really doesn't relate to real life. But when Jesus was saying these things, he didn't mean, he did not mean for the elite, for the few, for the really serious, for the ones that are really getting it, for the spiritually informed. He did not mean for his message to just be for those folks. He meant for it to be for everyone. And he believed and he taught that if we would create a world, a community, a group of people in a family, in a business, in a community that operated by a different set of rules, people who were entitled on one sense to fairness, but wouldn't hold themselves simply to fairness. If we would do that, he preached it would change everything. Now here's the irony. People took him seriously. I mean, they took his words to heart. When Jesus began to teach and walk around that desert over in Judea, right there on the, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, he said these kinds of things and people internalized them and began to do them. Rome was at the height of its power. And yet within 300 years, Rome has crumbled and the only remaining force in the world that has any real global impact is a group of people we've come to call Christians. What caused Rome to crumble Rome, a society that was built on entitlement and fairness and might and strength. What caused that to crumble? And in its place rose up an entirely different kind of society. A society that the historians tell us was marked by a completely different set of values. When things got tough in Rome, where fairness and might and entitlement were the norm, what happened was they'd take their little kids when they were born and they'd go put them on the bank of a river and leave them because they didn't have money to fend for them. If the child was weak or infirm, they'd put them outside the door and let the elements take care of business. When the Christians who were trying to take serious Jesus' words saw those kinds of things happen, here's what they did. They went and picked up those little babies took in the maimed and the infirm and began to care for them. They all had the idea that this life is not the most important thing, but there's an eternity on the other side of this life. And we need to live here right now in this life as if that other life is more important. So they would go into leper colonies, contagious disease, not because they thought they were immune, Many of them knew that the very act of engaging sick people like that was going to cause them to get sick themselves. They would lose their lives prematurely. But they did it because they believed this life is only a shadow of the real life. This life is the preparation for the real deal. And they took Jesus' words all the way seriously. They took him all the way seriously. One, there would be poor people in their community. 
And by poor people, I mean people who didn't know where the next meal was coming from, people who didn't have a change of clothes, people who owned no earthly goods. When there were people like that in their community, here's what the Christians did. Not rich people, by the way, just normal people who had a little bit of extra bread left over after a meal. They would bring those people into their house and they would sit down together and they would share what little bit they had, not what excess they had. To the point that Roman historians began to write, do your homework, Google this, right? I used to say go to the library, Google this, all right? Do your homework. The Christians would take those people in and feed them And over time, a movement began to where all the rules and all the might of Rome and all the armies and all the display of of splendor and glorious authority that was represented in the Roman aristocracy, all of that began to diminish and in its place rose up a group of people that were seen as strange and weird and at the same time beautiful. Everything they did hearkened not to a simple, shallow sense of entitlement. It hearkened to something much deeper inside of every person. And their ranks swelled. You couldn't stop people from wanting to become Christians. And so in an attempt to rein them in, the Roman authority, who knew the rules of might and fairness and power, they began to persecute these Christians. Every time they took one off and killed him, every time they threw one to the lions, every time they impaled one of them on a pole and stuck them in wax and lit them to light the garden so that the rich people could party, every time that happened, the church grew. Nothing could keep them from expanding their influence in this world. At the root of it wasn't that they were radically different people than us. That's not The difference back then compared to now. The difference was simply they took Jesus at his word. And when he said that God would come alongside those people who put Jesus first, who take the principles of the eternal kingdom and try to bring them into this temporary world, that God would be with them, that he would help them, that he would assist them, even to the point that if they lost their own lives, They would be better off. And they believed it. Make no mistake. It was no more simple for them than it is for us. They clung to every word of Jesus and tried to unpack its meaning. They weren't doing what W.C. Fields was doing one day when some actors came into his little actor's office, his little studio there, and they found him reading a Bible. You may not know this, but W.C. Fields was known to have a debauchery-filled life. He liked women and booze, and it was hard to tell which he liked more. Um, he seemed to enjoy a lot of, you know, of both of those in, in areas of life. And so when say, somebody walked into his little room and him, discovered him reading his Bible, they said, what are, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for the loopholes. I'm looking for the loopholes. That's not the attitude or the early Christians. They weren't trying to figure out what was the least they could do. They had been infected by the crazy love of God. It changed everything. And somehow they grew beyond the point of this simple thing that I think is a problem in American churches. It's not a problem in China. 
It's not a problem in Africa. It's not a problem in Russia. It's a problem in Westchester. And the problem is this. We go to God to get what we think we want first. And we don't grow out of that. It's understandable. It makes perfect sense. It's what my children do. Mine, mine, mine. That's not fair. You have more than I do. It's what I tend to do when I drive by. I've made it clear I'm a sucker for cars, TVs, and tools. I am. And every time I see somebody that has a little bit better, we were driving uh, home yesterday after some family time away celebrating my in-law's 50th wedding anniversary, and we passed cars, and me and my sons have gotten into this little thing of pointing out great cars. It's fun. They know their names. They know the styles. They can pick out the years by the taillights. And I realize I've created little versions of me where for the rest of their lives, they're going to long for cars that are way too expensive. And when we walk into Costco, we look at the new TV models and how that before when you had a 47-inch TV, it was awesome. But now you got to have a 60-inch TV to be awesome. And we talk and we stand around and we, we find ourselves saying, look, it's only, you know, $45,000 or whatever. <laughs> and we try, you can hear us trying to convince ourselves that it's the right thing for us. And underneath that, there is this language of entitlement. It's not all bad. If you work a fair day, you deserve a fair pay. God has arranged this world so that even in its broken, sinful state, a general sense of justice is what we all long for in fairness, and that's good. But Jesus called Christians to more. He did. And so for the rest of my message today, for the few minutes I have left, if you're not a Christian, pick and choose. Take what you like throughout the rest. That's your prerogative. But if you're a Christian... You don't get that choice because if it's God's word, we don't get to pick and choose. So I want to share with you three crazy love concepts that I think, not China, not Africa, not Russia, where they are eking it out and the church is expanding Heavy persecution, nothing lined up. Nobody gets a tax break in Russia for contributing to a church. They're eking it out. They're, they're digging it out with their fingernails and they are loving each other and serving each other and taking care of the widow and the orphan and the fatherless. And they're sacrificing. And their testimonies aren't built around things like I was having a bad day and I had to go shopping and I just couldn't take any more. So I prayed, God, would you give me a good parking spot? And there on the front row was a parking spot and I pulled in and I felt the sweet smile of my Savior. <laughs> Their testimonies aren't made up with crap like that. Their testimonies are made up with things like, I counted all joy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Suffer. They love taking the little bit of food they have and sharing it with others. And the church is exploding 
all the rules of the communist regime in China and all the dysfunction of a broken authoritative structure in Russia and all the division of warring powers in Africa can't keep the church from growing. But you know what keeps the church from growing in America? Entitlement. It's mine, and if I give it to you at all to do something with, it's somehow to come back and feed me. And it strangles the work of Jesus. We go to church primarily, many of us. If you're not a Christian, throw this out. Doesn't matter. Even those of us that are Christians know we can't live up to it in our own strength. So if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, you can't do this because you don't have the power of God working in you. It's just the way it is. The Bible says it. It's not Ben making it up. But if you are a Christian, even though the power of God resides in you and the Spirit of God wants to operate freely in your life, until you give yourself to the clear teachings of Jesus that a child can figure out, you don't need more theology. We might need more theology, but we don't need more theology to understand this. Until we give ourselves to that, we will at best be getting the scraps off the table for the feast that our Father has laid before us. That's why as a church we dug down deep into the crazy love of God. The crazy love of God. It makes no sense. It's weird. It's rebellion against this world. It's why I'm trying to and praying about and encouraging our staff to and talking to small group leaders about and doing training in our serving teams about raising the bar of taking seriously the messages of Jesus. So let me read what I think is one of the most damning passages for American Christianity. It's found in Mark chapter 10, verse 23 through 27. And even now, by the way, before I get started, the enemy is at work trying to say, hmm, the hard press is on. I don't like this. And because of some of your backgrounds, it's not setting well with you. And because some of your greed, it won't set well with you. And because some of your flirting with sin over here and trying to get all the benefits of following Jesus over here, it won't set well with you. So with no commentary from Ben, Mark chapter 10 Verse 23 through 27, the word of the Lord. Here's what it says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we say, well, I'm not rich. And yet in Jesus' audience, anybody that had food left on the table after the meal was over, they they were rich. Anybody that had food left on the table, anybody that had more than just a couple of garments to wear, they were rich. 
It's the way the rest of the world tends to live. And yet God has blessed us abundantly. And many of you, because of your hard work, because of your personal discipline, because of your developed skills, because of your redeeming opportunities, you've been able to lift yourself up above a subsistence that the rest of the world lives in. Many of you, the primary reason you're able to do that is because God saw fit to make sure you were born here, in this country, the land of opportunity. You didn't control that. God sovereignly put that in you. And God sovereignly wired up DNA in you in such a way that your brains could comprehend things that made what you were able to produce or write or say give you an ability to earn income beyond what the rest of the world can only imagine. And to almost every single American, Jesus would have been looking at them and saying, it's hard for the rich to enter heaven. When he was talking about the rich man, he was talking about almost every American in 2011. Why, why do riches become a challenge? I think it's because we learn to trust our riches instead of trusting God. I think somehow it feels more empowering to trust our riches than it feels empowering to put ourselves at the hand of a God who might ask us to do some pretty tough things. I think it's sometimes difficult to trust our own are more likely to trust your own intellect than to receive the difficult task with a willing attitude of, Lord, if you speak it, I'll follow. And, if, and I won't put it off. I won't delay. As I tell my kids, delayed obedience is, do you know this, parents? What is delayed obedience? Disobedience. Yeah, delayed obedience is disobedience. There's something about riches. Jesus said that mammon, the God of money, would vie for first place in our hearts. And many of you right now are exempting yourself because you say, I'm not rich. And yet, I'm rich by any global standard. I have to make the standard, the, 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 uh, the comparative group, so small compared to the population of the world in order for me to really convince myself I'm not rich. You know when I feel not rich? When I drive around Indian Hill and I think, man, that's a nice house. Whoo, wouldn't that be awesome? I don't feel rich when the Ferrari passes me on the interstate. And that's when I don't. I have to shrink the comparative to such a small point. And yet these, listen to me, these are the words of our Savior if you are a follower of Jesus, you do not get the option to disregard them. You can disregard me. I'm used to it. It's fine. I have four kids. I'm comfortable with being disregarded. But it never goes well for me as a follower of Jesus when I disregard Jesus. I cut myself off from his love and his favor. I think sometimes our abundance becomes a trap because we trust ourselves and our abilities and our efforts. And it feels good. The world somehow feels right. It feels fair. It feels equitable when I work and I feel like I'm entitled. Entitlement's okay as long as it's constrained by the teaching of Jesus. And I think that most of us tend to hoard our emotions 
our wealth, our times, for our own agendas. And most of us, if I can just be honest, this is pastoral insight. And if this doesn't affect you, exempt yourself here. But most of us hoard our time, our money, and our emotions for our own agendas. And we haven't taken the time to ask God, what would you have me do, Lord, with my emotion? We don't even really sometimes want to ask that question because we think he might ask us to forgive the person that we don't want to forgive. He might ask us to give another chance to cut a little slack, and we're not really prepared to do that. And in the words of Richard Foster, he said this very plainly, and he's dead on right, that we don't pray honest prayers because we're afraid God will hear us, and we don't really want to change. That's why the American church teeters on the edge of surviving when the rest of the world thrives. And I believe, I do believe, that if I've ever been among a group of people who are primed and ready to be the church, to live by a different standard, to live higher and qualitatively better, this church is that church. But in order to get there, friends, you and I have got to take the words of Jesus seriously. So again, I'm just talking to Christians today. If you're our guest today, so glad you're here. This is what we're about. Sometimes we do it by talking about marriage, pressing into the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes we talk about the teachings of Jesus in managing our personal debt. A lot of times we talk about Jesus in terms of beginning a relationship with him. Sometimes we talk about what it is to be operating in gifts of the Spirit or fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we talk about managing conflict, seizing your opportunities. Today, we're taking the words of Jesus seriously as it relates to money and stuff and entitlement. Can you imagine a world where every single follower of Jesus took what they earned and are entitled to because God gave them opportunity to earn it and then seriously held it with open hands and said, now God, what do you want me to do with what I'm entitled to? Do you want me to put it here? Because if you do, I will. And do you want me to put it here? Because if you do, I will. And what do you want me to do with the influence I have in other people's lives, the relationships? Because God, if you want me to take that relationship over here in a conversation, even if it's awkward, I will. And God, if you want me to sit over here and be quiet and absorb more, I will. And God, you've given me, just like everybody else in the world, 24 hours in a day and I don't, like they do in China, spend 14 of them just trying to garnish a little bit of rice to feed my family. No, I have excess time. So God, what would you like me to do with my time? Because God, if you want me to give it here, I will. And if you want me to give it here, I will. Can you imagine what would happen if a church of about 600 people, if just half of us took it seriously, like they did in the Bible. The stories are so profound that 2,000 years later, we read their testimonies in the book of Acts, 
and it still moves our hearts. We still long to be treated that way, but we've made the mistake of never really asking, God, I don't want to just be treated that way. I want to be that way. So I'm asking you three quick challenges. I want you to think about going outside your Christian friends for the next few weeks. There's just under 100 days left in this year. To go outside your Christian friends with a missionary intention and leverage the influence you have. And get up in the morning and say, now God, what would you have me do with these relationships? Can I speak an encouraging word? Do I need to speak a corrective word? Do I need to introduce you into the dialogue? I want to ask you to increase your material giving. Some of you have stuff you could give to somebody else and bless them. Some of you have money you could bless somebody with. Some of you have money you could bless the church with. I want to ask you to take it seriously and break the stranglehold of greed that for some of you is generations deep in your family and has caused all kinds of dysfunction in your family and you hold the power to break that here and now for you and your grandkids and you and your husband or your wife. And I want to ask you to take some time and figure out how to serve others. We're doing crazy love groups. And over the next couple of weeks, every group leader will be introducing what we're calling crazy love four corners. And we're going to, in crazy love groups, go serve our community in ways that they can't immediately give back. All over this church, pockets of individual bringing their ideas and their resources and their time and their emotions to serving other people. It's going to do amazing work in this church between now and Christmas. And we're going to celebrate it. If you're in a crazy love group, it's already coming. If you're not in a crazy love group, we'll have opportunities for you to do it. It is a busy time of year. You've got plenty of other things to do. And yet somewhere deep down, Jesus calls you and me. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. I'm not calling you. Some of you will be mad at me just because I'm the mouthpiece. That's fine. I didn't get here. I didn't get anywhere good in life by listening only to my critics. These are the words of Jesus. And I'm asking you to step up your following. So once you grab it to your connect card, and let's take a few steps together. <clears throat> I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, yeah, the principles of Jesus resonate with me. And I'd like to be all the way in I'd like to receive Jesus as my Savior for the first time. Hey, if that's you, it's very simple. God, I am a sinner. That's your attitude. I'm not perfect. I've blown it. I need you. There's a thousand ways to say it. And I receive the gift of life you've offered. I want you to lead my life. And if that's your attitude, the simple act of checking this box can be your act of faith. That you want to receive what God has. And in a moment, I'm going to pray about that. Here's next step B. Not for the faint of heart, but I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, in the month of October, I'm going to step up to giving a full tithe. Here, here's the good news. If you don't know what the word tithe is, ignore this. Some of you grew up in church and you've been walking in active disobedience. Come on. Not for me. Give your tithe to another church. But step up and do what Jesus called you to do. And here's the next step C for some of us. I'm inviting some non-Christian friends to church with me. Maybe you have to build a relationship with them. Maybe you need to have them over for dinner. I don't know what you need to do. 
But I think ultimately we want to get them in an environment where they can consider the crazy love of Jesus and become part of a movement of people who are crazy loving other people. In the next step, D, I wonder if anybody would say, I'm going to step up and serve with the team at Four Corners. We have a lot of like independent agents who don't serve anywhere and they just kind of help out. That's all good, but it doesn't help us as a movement really rally our resources. So getting on a team, having a leader, communicating, signing up for, that really helps us leverage all of our resources to trying to become a church that would be really radical in America. And yet I think it's exactly what God's called us to. Now, if you think that I've been a little harsh today, let me just make something perfectly clear to you. I have spent the last four months in a heartbreaking prayer. And I've been doing church with training wheels on. And I've left some of you anemic and sick. That changes. That changes. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I am crazy loved. And God, this week you grabbed my heart. And you showed me, Lord, where the pulpit leads the church. You said it's through the foolishness of preaching that your word is done, that your work is accomplished. And so I stand before you, Lord. Keep my heart in the center of your will. And God, give us a church that both welcomes people who don't know you, gives them an opportunity to gently get involved in your movement, but then radically proclaims your truth without apology. Help us not cater to the burnt over believer who is cynical, who is rebellious, but God, instead, help us preach to those of us, help us to live out among us, those folks who want to follow you with their lives and to do it with grace and gentleness, but clarity. And God, if you'll do that, our next year will be our best year because we'll have brought glory and honor to you. We pray it in the name of Jesus.